We're in chapter 10 this week. Last few weeks, we've looked at the Noah story, and we saw how the biblical author sets the biblical Noah account in the world of the ancient Near East as something of a counter to the other ancient Near Eastern, Mesopotamian and Egyptian, Babylonian, Sumerian cosmologies and mythological accounts. And all of the cultures that we looked at, or a number of the cultures, had an ancient flood account. And the biblical author walked us through the covenant-related, biblical-themed flood account, somewhat as what C.S. Lewis would call the true myth. In other words, as a way of saying, yeah, we all know that this thing happened. Let me tell you how it actually happened. Let me tell you why it happened. It wasn't because the gods were uh, annoyed because they couldn't sleep. It wasn't through the craftiness of an individual, but rather it was because of God's judgment on humanity because of the wickedness, the downward spiral of sin. And that's a theme that separates the biblical accounts from other ancient Near East accounts is this real concept of sin and a relationship between God and humanity that's gone off the rails. So the Genesis early chapters are trying to get us, we're, we're closing in on the part where they're going to introduce us to the, you don't want to say the hero of the story, because that's not exactly right, but they're going to introduce us to the line of protagonists. God is the hero of the story in Genesis, but the family of Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob, who become the descendants, the Israelites, they are going to be the protagonists through the rest of the book of Genesis and then on into scripture. So Genesis gives us the origins of Abraham's family and sets it within the context of what's going on in the world, within world history. So that's what we come to in Genesis 10. The flood account ends, Genesis 9 ends with the death of Noah. Unlike Utnapishtim in the Babylonian account, Noah does not live forever. He doesn't gain immortality as a prize for surviving the flood. No, sin is still in the world. Death is still in the world. People are still, there's, there's, been, a, there's been a mitigation of sin's effect. There's been a setback in terms of getting things back to the created order originally, but sin is still in the world, and it's going to continue to be in the world. And humanity is, is mm, they've been shown grace, but they haven't been completely redeemed from the effects of their rebellion back in the garden. So this is all, again, this is all leading us up to the appearance of Abram and the people of Israel and the covenant God makes with Abram, with Isaac, with Jacob, and then after the exodus at Mount Sinai, it all folds into the narratives that are going to come after. So it's important to keep that in mind. We don't want to pull out passages of Genesis and set that up as if this is the ideal of God for all time, because it's not. What we're getting in Genesis' early accounts is God relating and interacting and even being sorry at or being grieved by his own creation, which is something that is outside the realm of a lot of people's concept of theology. But yet that's what we have in the text. So we come to Genesis 10. Genesis 10 has been called the table of nations. And the reason is because it lays out 70, or in the Septuagint, 72 nations that represent all the peoples of the ancient world. All of the descendants of Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth, they are going to, the, the table of nations, Genesis 10 is going to tell us somewhat how they settled out 
after Noah left the ark, after humanity started to repopulate the earth, after they started to spread again. This has taken place over centuries, if not millennia, of time. There's, there's not, it's a short, I mean, it's a quick list in a chapter, but it takes place over ages and ages. And a lot of the names that you're going to read in Genesis 10 are not individual names. Some of them are, like Nimrod, who we're going to see as an individual, but some of these names are actually names of regions or names of people. And so there's a, this, is not a, this is not a genealogy in chapter 10. It's a table. There's going to be a genealogy in chapter 11 after the Tower of Babel. It'll get back to a genealogy, but this is not primarily a genealogy. This is like a geography. This is showing how the peoples are going to spread and become the nations that surround Israel, Israel's friends, Israel's neighbors. This is not an exhaustive list either. It's, it's, it's poised in the Hebrew at 70 or in the Greek at 72. It's a constructed list. So the author was intentional about including particular peoples and not being exhaustive. Once again, you have to understand the early chapters of Genesis, they are not exhaustive in their history. They're not like a world book or Encyclopedia Britannica, trying to, like Wikipedia, you know, trying to make, trying to present everything in its totality as best they can. They're not trying to do that. It's giving us Israel's neighbors and how they got to be basically how things got to be the way they are by the time of the first audience reading this book, which is Israel, Covenant Israel around Mount Sinai. So what we read, Genesis chapter 10, this is the Toledot, again in Hebrew, this is the section that breaks up the book of Genesis, the generations of, the account of, the record of, however you want to translate it, the Hebrew word Toledot um, is this section is going to describe what unfolds. This is the generation or the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You can say Japheth because that's the English version of the name, but Japheth. Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. Verse 2, the sons of Japheth. Gomer, Magog, Madai, Yavan, Tuval, Meshach, Tiras. Now, pause here. This whole section is a bunch of names. And usually when people get to biblical names, especially in the Old Testament, their eyes just glaze over. Nobody's got time to read all these funny sounding words. And a lot of times people don't know how to read these Old Testament names. There's a video on Disciple Dojo. If you go to Disciple Dojo's YouTube channel and click on Disciple Dojo videos, that playlist, there's a video called How to Pronounce All Those Hard Old Testament Names. And the gist of the video is pronounce every letter. I mean, there are a few other rules, but, but there are only like three or four things you have to know to be able to pronounce all the biblical names. But just a rule of thumb, pronounce all the letters. Uh, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Yavan, Tubal, Meshach, Tiras. Just say every letter. They're not super hard, but they are weird names and we don't get them. Uh, usually. These peoples that are being listed, these names, these are going to become the nations that surround Israel, like we said, like Madai, that's going to become the Medes, the Median Empire. Uh, Tubal, that's the, the Greeks, or the, uh, no, sorry, not Tubal, Yavan is the Ionians. 
These are going to give rise to later peoples. So it goes on, the sons of Gomer, uh, Ashkenaz, Ritha, see how to say that? Rith, P-H, Ath, Rifath, Ashkenaz, Rifath, Tagarma. All you have to do is say each section, say each letter, and you'll get the names. But they are weird in our ears, so they're hard to, they don't roll off the tongue. They would to the ancients, though. And then he gives the sons of Yavan, Elisha, Tarshish, the Ketim, and Rodanim. Now, uh, Tarshish, this is a letter, this nation is going to become important later in biblical history. Tarshish is going to be like in English how we say Timbuktu, from here to Timbuktu. Well, Timbuktu is an actual real city or real place somewhere, but most people don't even know where because it just represents kind of the ends of the earth. And that's what Tarshish represents in biblical usage. It is wherever we want to identify it. Some people identify it somewhere in like Spain or the far western Mediterranean. Wherever it is, it has the sense when you say from, from here to Tarshish, it has the sense of saying from here to Timbuktu, just far, far away. And it'll be mentioned again in elsewhere in biblical text when it, the prophets talk about the ends of the earth bringing their gifts to Jerusalem, bringing their gifts, God's kingdom extending to the ends of the earth, it'll mention Tarshish. Or when it talks about Solomon's fleet of ships that traded all over the known world, it's called in 1 Kings 10, the ships of Tarshish, meaning ships that go out to all the world and bring back goods and trade. So that is something to keep in mind, tucked away in this little list of hard to pronounce names. The Katim, that was most likely Cyprus, uh, Rodenim is, is most likely Rhodes, the island of Rhodes. These are coastal island nations that have descended from Noah's son, Japheth, or Japheth. So Japheth, from everything up north, from northern, what would be today the Caucasus region, southern Russia, uh, all the way over into Europe, southern Europe, as far west into the western Mediterranean, this is generally where these sons of Yafeth have uh, settled, where they ended up spreading out. Verse 5, from the maritime peoples, from these the maritime peoples spread out into their territories by their clans with their nations, each with its own language. And we're going to hear about that in the next chapter. When we read about the Tower of Babel, we're going to, this is a, giving you a preview for what's going to come in the next section. It's going to talk about different languages, and it's going to talk about the earth, the peoples being divided. In this chapter, both of those are going to be explained through recapitulation in the next chapter. So we keep going. We come to uh, the sons of Ham. These are like Israel's neighbors. These are kind of <clears throat> Israel's rivals in the area. So the sons of Japheth are like kind of northern, all the way over to the west, spread out. Now, the sons of Ham, Cush, Mizraim, put and Canaan. Now these four sons of Ham that are listed are all four nations, not necessarily individuals. These may be individuals who the nations come from, just like Israel came from a guy named Israel later in scripture. But these, by the time of anybody reading this, these are the nations surrounding Israel. Cush is either the nation that we would consider uh, generally Ethiopia, or it refers to the Kassites over in Arabia. It could be either of those, and there's debate on which. 
the word Mizraim, in some translations, if you're reading along, it says Egypt. Well, because the Hebrew word for Egypt is Mizraim. Every time you see Egypt in the Bible, in the Old Testament, every time, the Hebrew word you're reading there is Mizraim. Mizraim was the excuse me, Mizraim was the Hebrew name for Egypt. So the two sons of Ham so far are Cush, Egypt, Put, which is most likely Libya or somewhere in the area of Libya today, and Canaan. From the last chapter, this is the grandson of Noah, Canaan, who was cursed. The line of Canaan was cursed by Noah because of the behavior of his father Ham. This is important. This introduces what's going to become a major source of conflict in the rest of the Pentateuch, in the rest of the Torah. And that's going to be the conflict between Israel and Canaan, the Israelites and the Canaanites. It's not going to arise until around the time of the Exodus, after the, the centuries of God's people living in and around Canaan, Abram being in the land of Canaan, then going down to Egypt, and then eventually God saying, it's time for me to judge the Canaanites. All this is going to come later. So right now, if you're reading this text for the first time, you're hearing these names and these places for the first time. They are going to figure incredibly into the text later as you go along. Even as early as, as Genesis 15, even about five chapters from now, we're going to start hearing about some of these peoples and the fate that's going to happen. So these names are giving, remember, this whole series that we're doing is we've compared the opening chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11. We've compared them to the beginning of the movie of the Lord of the Rings, where you get the quick voiceover that introduces all these names and concepts, the ring, the dark Lord, the elves, the men, Isildur, you know, these weird terms that we don't know what they mean because we aren't familiar with the geography of Middle Earth or the history of Middle Earth. But all of the Tolkien nerds who've read all the books and who've just immersed themselves in it, they know, they'll tell you all about all those names and all those places. And it's like that with the Bible. We're getting these names, we're getting these places, and Bible nerds, they'll tell you all about how these, how these unfold later in Israel's history. But for the reader, the thing that's important to know is where the board is being set up. The board is being set up on which the game is going to be played out in the rest of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all the way into Revelation, where again, these people's, many of these people's names are going to be mentioned even in Revelation. So we're setting up the board. So those are Ham's sons. Then it traces the sons of Cush, uh, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, Sabteca. These are generally considered peoples in what we would consider today, I said consider twice, these are generally thought to be people in what would be considered today Arabia, the Arabian Peninsula. So the descendants of Japheth are kind of north all the way into southern Europe, and then the descendants of Ham are kind of in what we would deem the Middle East proper, so to speak. And then it gives the sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dadon. Then there's a parenthetical note here. In your Bible, you could put a parenthesis around this section, around verses 8 through 12, because it gives you, there's one more son. Before moving on 
uh, and, and going on with the rest of Ham's genealogy, getting to the sons of Egypt, which it's going to in verse 13. Before it does that, it tells you, it's just talked about these peoples in what today would be the Arabian, modern Iran, Iraq area, um, northern Saudi Arabia. As it's giving these peoples, then it puts this parenthetical note. Verse 8, there's one more son. Cush was, and you could read this as also the father of, because they just listed all of Cush's sons, and then here's a special son that's noted. Cush was the father of Nimrod. There's a debate about what the name Nimrod means. In English, Nimrod just means moron. Uh, it's come to mean that, but at the time, it it possibly meant to rebel or have something to do with the verb for to rebel, but that's uncertain. We don't really know what the name Nimrod actually meant. But it says, Nimrod, who grew up to be a mighty warrior on the earth, or who began to be a mighty warrior, or you could translate it as, who was the first to be a mighty warrior on the earth, or a champion on the earth, or a mighty warrior in the land. Remember, there's a lot of uh, uh, fluidity in how these terms are translated. But we read about this guy, he just pops on the scene, Nimrod. He was a mighty champion in the land, on the earth in the area. Now this puts us somewhere in the realm of back in Genesis 6. This this harkens back to the age of when it says the sons of God and the daughters of man and the Nephilim and they were on the earth in those days and after the flood. So this is kind of linking us to that period, that heroic age of the Nephilim or the, the mighty warriors on the earth. People like Gilgamesh. A lot of people think or have tried to make the connection that Nimrod is the Hebrew Gilgamesh. And not really. You can't go that far. But this description of Nimrod is going to place it within that time, within that uh, epoch, E-P-O-C-H, epoch, epoch, within that general time frame of, that was talked about or hinted at or, or foreshadowed in Genesis chapter 6. The age of these men of renown, these heroes of old. And so this guy, Nimrod, look what he does. It says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Or it could just be he was a, the mightiest hunter. The phrase before the Lord to the face of Yahweh, literally in Hebrew, that could be a superlative, meaning just like the mightiest hunter in God's eyes. Like that would be the mightiest hunter ever. Or it could be he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and it could hint that there was some type of relationship between Nimrod and the Lord. Regardless, he's considered a mighty hunter. Now, that's a weird thing. Why, what is, why does that matter? Well, we'll come back to it, because look what else he does. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That's why it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. So it's quoting this ancient proverb. Whenever you, you know, like when we want to say, oh, that guy's a real Hitler. And what we mean is he's a real dictator or oh, he's, he's, a, he's the new Stalin. You know, like he's a new, just a, a despot. Um, he, we, we name people after famous people in history. Or this guy's a new Gandhi. He's the next Mother Teresa. She's the next Mother Teresa. It's a way of associating the character that those people are famous for with the person that we're talking about. Well, that's what the text is saying. Nimrod was such a great warrior hunter that he became a proverb. So when somebody wanted to describe someone in ancient primeval history in this part of the world, there was a saying that was around, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. 
to, to compare your might to someone. So this guy, Nimrod, he had a reputation. He had an international reputation. He had a proverb. He was, he was the mightiest. He was the strongest. He was the best hunter that there was. And so verse 10, it says, the beginning of his kingdom, or the first centers of his kingdom, or the chief of his kingdom, it's the word that's used at the beginning of Genesis, Rashith, the 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 what would flow out of is is kind of the concept the beginning of his kingdom cities were babylon eric which is uruk in babylonian akkad which is the akkadians uh, and kalna in shinar we're going to hear about shinar in the next chapter this chapter is loading tucked away in these hard to pronounce names and this stuff that just makes our eyes glaze over are little nuggets of details that are going to unfold in the coming chapters. We're going to hear about Shinar in the very next chapter. We're also going to hear about Babylon. Verse 11, from that land, he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ear, or that could read the city squares of Nineveh, or Nineveh and its city square, because Rehoboth, Ear just means city square, Kala, and Rezin which is between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city, end of parentheses. So what's going on here? You just jumped in on this discussion. You're like, what? I don't even get any of this stuff. In the middle of describing the, the spreading out of, of the sons of Ham, the cursed line from the last chapter, Noah cursed Ham's descendants, particularly the descendants of Canaan. In describing that family tree, Ge uh, geologically or geographically speaking, we get a parenthetical note and introduces one of these descendants as this guy Nimrod. And Nimrod, who was mighty, went on to found, went on to establish, whether it's him in the per as a person or what's probably more likely is his dynasty after him. Either way, he went on to establish two of what are going to become Israel's biggest enemies in all of scripture. He went on to found, this guy Nimrod goes to, gives rise to what becomes the Babylonians and what becomes the Assyrians. And those are the two nations that in biblical history are going to destroy Israel. Assyria, the Assyrians are gonna destroy the Northern Kingdom of Israel and almost destroy the Southern Kingdom. The Babylonians are gonna come in a couple of centuries later and finish the job. And Israel is going to be taken into exile to this place, this area, and is going to be there for 70 years. Babylon and Assyria become, along with Egypt, basically the, the big three in terms of evil world empires that are going to oppress Israel. So we're getting right now what just seems like a list of names, but for the reader, remember, the Bible is literary. It's not meant to just give you Sunday school fables. It's not just meant to give you a short devotional thought for the day. You're not going to read this chapter and go, oh, that's so inspiring. Thank you, Lord. Now I can really go out and tackle the day. That's not what this is about. I mean, you may. I don't know. The Holy Spirit can do all kinds of stuff. But what this is about is setting the stage, literarily introducing the characters and the concepts and the themes that are going to unfold from this point all the way through the book of Revelation. 
Revelation is going to end with God telling his people, come out of Babylon, fallen as Babylon the Great. Babylon is going to epitomize all worldly empires that set themselves up as either divine or in the place of God for their people. Babylon is going to come to symbolize all of the world empires that destroy people for the sake of material wealth, that, that think themselves too big to fail, that consider themselves heirs of the gods. I mean, they're, they're in, in Babylonian literature, Babylon was, was established by the gods. I believe it was Marduk. And Babylon was seen as, well, if you live in Babylon, you're just living under the kingdom that the gods have brought down and put in place. Same with Assyria. Look at the reliefs. Look at the images. Look at, I've got a book of ancient Near East imagery and iconography and reliefs of sculptures and tablets. You will see these kings, and Egypt's going to go on and do the same. We'll see that in the Exodus under Pharaoh. You'll see these kingdoms set themselves up and give this uh, we would call it propaganda. Propaganda that they are the greatest people on earth. They are the greatest nation that the gods have favored. They are the light to all of the world. Every world empire does this. And Genesis traces it all the way back to this account of this guy Nimrod. This concept, see in the ancient Near East, tyrant kings Kings, a good, noble, ideal, archetypal king in the ancient Near East, did two things. Was a mighty warrior or hunter, and usually both, because if you can shoot a big animal and kill it, you can probably shoot a person with a bow and arrow and kill it. If you can throw a spear at a bear or a lion and bring it down, you can probably take out some soldiers on the other side. So fighting and hunting were very much interrelated in the ancient Near East, a good ancient Near East king. He was a mighty hunter or warrior, and he built cities. That's what ancient Near East kings did. Cities in the ancient world were not just places to hang out and live with your friends. Cities in the ancient world were what we would call citadels. Cities in the ancient world, when the Bible talks about cities being founded, many times it has in mind what we would call a fortress, a garrison, a citadel. It's an enclosed area where, yeah, people live, but they leave the city each day. They go out, they work in the fields, they tend their flocks, they do what they have to do. And then at night, they come back in the city, they close the city gates, and it's, it's a, a place of protection. Cities were a way to keep from being spread out and dispersed. That was their function. We're going to see this in the next chapter, how all of this comes into play at the Tower of Babel. But cities were fortresses. And so good, ideal kings in the ancient world, they, they fought enemies and overcame them. And they established cities, meaning they protected their people. So this guy, Nimrod, the text mentioning him doing these things is saying this all began, this whole process began and unfolded into what would become empires. Babylon, Assyria, and empires throughout world history, they do basically those things for their people. They're strong so they can protect. And that's what people idealize. That's what people look to. That's why people want a king. Later in Israel's history, they're going to say, give us a king so we can be like the other nations. Because they didn't have a king during the time of judges. They had God as their king. And God was invisible. 
God didn't have this mighty standing visible army. God didn't have a fortress city with high walls. God didn't have any of that stuff because he didn't need it. And he didn't need it to protect his people. But because people need that stuff, they look to that stuff. And so that's what people create. We, it goes on even today. The concept, wherever you see empire, wherever you see a nation being considered strong, it usually had to do with the size of its military, the size of its industry. The city and the warrior king. That's what people want. And that's what, it's, it's nothing new. It's been that way throughout history. So this is letting us know that this, it's putting it within the line of Ham and, and, and putting it next to and adjacent to the descendants of Canaan and Ham and his uh, sons. It's all putting this in the realm of that to let us know that these concepts, it's not saying that it's just purely evil, but it is ominous. And especially as you read how this unfolds throughout Israel's history, the more ominous reading it back then comes across. But at this point, it's just, uh, it's in seed form. It's, it's, it's in germ form. It's going to spread. The concepts are going to grow throughout the rest of Scripture. But now we jump back to finishing this line of Ham. It goes on and traces Egypt or Mizraim. Mizraim was the father of the Luddites, the Anamites, Lehabites, Naphtuhites, Pathrusites, just say every consonant cluster and every word and you can pronounce it, Kasluhites, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorites. Kaphtorites would be the island of Crete today. So these are the descendants of Egypt, uh, of Mizraim. And then last, Canaan. Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and of the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Arvidites, Zimmerites, and Hamathites. And if you were a preacher and you want to throw in a cheesy preacher joke, stalactites and stalagmites. Yeah, I was talking to you, Talbot. This is what, that's my preacher. This is what um, these peoples are collectively part of who become the Canaanites. They are going to be a number of these that are still around at the time. Because remember, this is, this is hundreds, maybe thousands of years before the events in later parts of Genesis and Exodus. But these are the Canaanite peoples. Five chapters from now, these, some of these who are still around are going to be mentioned as the people whose land God is going to give Abram and his descendants. So they're being introduced here and they're within the line, direct line of Canaan, the cursed son of Noah. So it's setting the stage for this enmity between Israel and the Canaanites. And specifically, throughout Scripture, you'll hear Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites. You're going to hear those terms later in the book of Genesis. And it goes on to tell us, Later the Canaanite clan scattered, and the borders of Canaan reached Sidon from as far as Gaza, and then towards Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha, or Laish. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, languages, and their territories and nations. So we have the sons of Japheth who have spread out, kind of like to the ends of the earth. And then you have the sons of Ham. These are the Canaanites, predominantly. And the empires. These are Israel's neighbors. These are the, the people who are going to be trouble. The nations who are going to be trouble in the coming times, in Israel's coming history. Then we get to the Shemites, the, the, the sons of Shem. 
Verse 21, sons were also born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth, or it could read Shem, the older brother of Japheth. So we don't know, the Hebrew reads either way. We don't know who's older of the two. It doesn't really matter. Uh, but what does matter is Ham is excluded. It doesn't say the older brother of Japheth and Ham. Ham is excluded from this list, and that probably has a lot to do with him being cursed in the previous chapter. Says so Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. Uh, Eber could just ge a generic term that has to do with crossing over or passing over from that's what the verb means. But this term gives rise to what is going to be called the Hebrews. Eber, the Hebrews. So the Hebrews become, or, or Shem gives rise to who the rest of this book of Genesis and the rest of the Bible is going to be concerned with. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arpachad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Meshach. Arpachad was the father of Shelah, and Shelah the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. So now we're getting down to the people. It's narrowing in on two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg, because in his time the earth was divided, or the land was separated. Peleg just means division. His brother was named Yachtan. Yachtan was the father of, so it's going to get back to Peleg. Peleg's the guy to keep in mind. This is When this happens, it says there's a division among the land. It just hints at it. It doesn't tell us what. Next chapter is going to tell us what. It's all feeding into what's going to come in the next chapter. But it gives us the genealogy or the, the descendants of Yachtan. Yachtan was the father of Amadad, Shelef, Hazar Maveth, Yera, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla. <laughs> you can't say that without giggling. Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havila, and Yovab. All these were the sons of Yachtan. Now, None of these really become anybody of significance later in Scripture. The son of Joktan just kind of go off and become their own peoples. The section is going to pick up with the son, the, the line that goes through Peleg. And because that's going to end us up with this guy named Terah and Terah's sons. And one of Terah's sons is going to be Abraham. So we're getting down to how all the peoples of the earth are spreading out. Sons of Japheth, the sons of Ham, and then the Semites. That's where the name, that's where the term anti-Semitic comes from. Semitic means people of the line of Shem. And so the, the Shemites, the Semites, are the peoples in that region. So the Hamites and the Shemites are kind of in the same area and they butt heads a lot throughout the rest of Israel's history. This is setting the stage. This is like putting the pieces on the board in a big game of risk. And we're, we, we're, we have to, we, it's not important that we know all of these names in all these places, because you can't. Even the ones that I'm telling you, these are the names of these people, there's still a little bit of uh, ambiguity or uncertainty in identifying all of these people, because this is ancient primeval history. But we're moving from proto-history to prehistory, which is what's going to come up in the next section in Tower of Babel. And it's telling us how we're getting there. So weaving the narrative of why it's so important when we meet Abraham, we meet him as Abram, why it's so important to know who he is 
and where he is and who are the peoples around him. The, the stage is being set. Uh, this is a shorter, we're going to end it today. Verse 32, or verse 30, the region where they lived stretched from Mesha towards Sephar in the eastern hill country. These are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages and their territories and nations. And then summarizing all of it. These are the clans of Noah's sons, according to their lines of descent with their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth or over the land, upon the land, after the flood. So this is telling us after this cataclysmic flood happened, God's mandate to humanity was still in effect. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. He's made his covenant with creation. He's wanted creation to spread. He's wanted people to fill the earth. The mission of Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis 2, the mandate is still in effect. But sin is in the picture. And where there's sin, there's danger for humanity and threat and threat of death. And where there's the threat of death and the danger, humans do what humans have always done, which is huddle together pull their forces together, circle the wagons, as we say, and protect themselves against these threats. That's the seed of every empire that's going to arise after this in Scripture. And in contrast to that, God's going to take one guy named Abram, who's very well, well off. He's got a lot of uh, servants. He's got like household retainers. He's got people. He's got wealth. He's got flocks and herds. He's got a lot of stuff. He doesn't have a son. And God's going to say, hey, you're pretty secure. Leave all this. Go to the land that I'll show you. And if you do that, I'll make your name great. I'll make you into a great nation. I will. All the promises of Genesis chapter 12 that God's going to speak to Abraham. So God is, there's, there, it's almost like two paths are being offered at this primordial time in Israel's, or not even Israel. Israel's not on the scene yet. Israel comes out of the nations. Abram comes out of the nations. But it's like two paths are being offered to humanity, the path of following God or the path of, of building our own certainty, in effect, becoming our own God. And that will be a tension throughout the rest of Scripture. And God will enter into that. And sometimes he'll capitulate to humans' desire for security. And sometimes he'll work within it. And sometimes he'll say, no, you need to step out in faith and you need to trust me, not trust in your own resources. And that'll be attention throughout the rest of Scripture, but it goes all the way back to the beginning of Israel's primordial history. Next chapter, we're gonna we could have done it today, but we've only I don't want to jump into it now. We got we're gonna do one more before the end of this series. Remember, this series is just Genesis one through eleven. So next time we're gonna do Genesis eleven. Genesis eleven is going to jump back into this general time period. During you know this time period having to do with the people like Nimrod, um, during the time when uh, Eber and Peleg, when the land was divided, and there, um, or Yachtan and Peleg, sorry, not Eber and his sons, Yachtan and Peleg, when the when the peoples were divided, and when the different nations and the different languages, how that came into effect. So just like it happens all the time in Hebrew narrative, it tells a big picture event, Genesis ten. And then in the next chapter, it jumps back and gives a little window into a time of that event or a part of that event before continuing on with the story. It did it in Genesis 1, big event, creation of the heavens and the earth 
in chapter 1, verse 1. Then it jumps back into now the surface of the earth, Genesis 1, chapter 2, and it gives the accounts of the earth being created. Then in Genesis chapter 2, it jumps back into the sixth day of the earth's creation and gives us an even closer look of that creation of the man and the woman before then carrying on. So this is called recapitulation. It ha it's not... It, it's not evidence of extra sources or, or different accounts that have been woven together as scholars used to think um, in prior decades. It's not that. This is, a, this is how the Hebrew narrative and Hebrew uh, text of Genesis is intentionally crafted. Recapitulation, telling something twice, telling it from two different perspectives, uh, repetition. These things are part of the way the Bible's written. This is part of how it was. So keep that in mind. We're going to call it a day next week. We're going to close with the account of the Tower of Babel, another story that gets kind of misinterpreted by a lot of uh, surface readings. And we're going to put it in place, hopefully in terms of the final pieces being set on the board so that when Genesis 12 starts, we have an idea of what God is calling Abram to do and into what type of world is he calling him? And that's going to set the stage for the rest of the entire Bible.